Hi everyone, I'm Sony Kasim, Director of Multimedia and Content Strategy at Becker's Hospital Review. Thank you for tuning in to the Becker's Healthcare Podcast Series. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Max Williamson, a patient representative for the UK National Cancer Research Institute, and Karen Roland Yeo, Senior Vice President at Sertara. In today's episode, we'll chat all about the pediatric drug developments. Max and Karen, thanks so much for being here today and welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Awesome. So before we dive into the questions here, I'd love to ask a little bit about the two of you. So what is something about you that most people wouldn't guess? So I'm going to jump in here. So probably what most people don't know about me is that I grew up in uh, Southern Africa, Zimbabwe, and I'm used to, you know, living in quiet spaces, remote and having a lot of time to myself. But I think a lot of people who know me and because I'm in the uh, scientific arena a lot and giving a lot of presentations, I think a lot of people sort of think that I'm quite gregarious and type A. But in actual fact, you know, what I absolutely love is just peace and quiet and being left in the middle of nowhere where there's absolutely no Internet or yeah, contact from the, you know, the real world. Probably similar to what I had this weekend when I was stuck in the Lake District in the UK without any power internet or phone connections yeah i have to agree karen i think that would be a brilliant weekend actually i have to say so a fact about me that most people don't know would be the reason why i'm involved with a lot of this pediatric drug development work is that i myself am a patient and i had cancer when i was 15 um, and that's kind of pushed me into this into this world of development and, and pharmaceuticals and then also medicine as well i'm a medical student on the side and um, or rather, I, I think my medical school, rather I said, I'm a medical student and then I do this on the side. But the thing that I wanted to do before I was sick was cook. Um, it's something I've always really enjoyed doing. And it's the thing I do to relax every day. And I think if I, you know, in a different universe, uh, there's maybe a Max out there who's, you know, now slaving away at the kitchen rather than uh, on this podcast. But thanks for having me anyway. So am I allowed to jump in here and ask whether you like Great British Bake Off or MasterChef? <laughs> no, no, it's good. I love them Sorry. both. Love them both. Bake Off is a huge is a is a huge thing in my house. Actually, I have to say, we love watching it. Um, it's always good fun. It's the most is the most British thing I can think of. Actually, it kind of describes everything. I would say is you know is British culture really called Hollywood and Prulief. <laughs> I'll definitely have to watch that. I've I've heard a lot of of great things. And Karen, that was a, a great important question to ask. Um, Max, thanks so much for sharing a little bit about your background. It must be a really tough journey, and, and great to see that you're giving back to others after going through it. What you've gone through. So, just to begin this conversation, what do you see as the biggest challenge in pediatric drug development? So I'm going to bat that one to Max because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a modeler and so I'm used to dealing with virtual patients. So based on Max's experience, he's probably the best one to uh, address that question. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Given my perspective, um, I think the thing I want to see change most is how we think about young people within this space. Um, and that is the kind of teenage, young adult kind of sphere. Um I think it's important to recognize, and this is something you kind of we all see, is that adolescence is this different stage in life. And we, you know, it's different from childhood, it's different from adulthood. And that kind of maybe 14, 13, 13 to 24, 25 year old stage, those 10 years are hugely formative. Um, but when it comes to drug development, I think there's a lot of systems that, that exist that are quite inflexible and they recognize, you know, maybe a boundary between the 16 and 18 year old um, in terms of trial recruitment and trial age groups. So often we'll have pediatric trials that will recruit to 16 or 18 as a maximum age limit. And then adult trials that will recruit to 18 or 16 as a minimum. 
Um, and this means occasionally, and this is something I work on quite heavily with groups like Fair Trials, which presented to um, Sotara in the conference a couple of weeks ago. We're trying to ensure that every young person, regardless of age, get, gets access to the right kind of research. Um, and there have been instances, although incredibly rare in the cancer world, where a young person might have been excluded from a clinical trial that might have offered benefit simply because they were 17 when the minimum age, age limit for adult trials might have been 18. And equally, we can think of cases where there might have been someone who's, you know, 21 with a cancer that normally occurs in someone who's 14 or 15 who wasn't included. So for me, I think it's the most important thing to focus on. I think it's a really, it's a really key challenge in terms of how we work with legislators and regulators to try and ensure that this barrier becomes more flexible to allow young people onto any trial that they are physiologically relevant for given their disease. Very interesting. You know, I mean, I, I batted the question over to you, but something that you said actually resonated with me. And one of the things that we always talk about when we're doing the presentations on the modeling is saying that children are not little adults. One of the things that we have to uh, consider is the, you know, the physiology changing, the enzymes, everything that we build into the um, the models that, that we work on and build into the software. You know, we have to be aware of all that. So I think that was a great point and very relevant. And so just wanted to jump in there because it, it just resonated with me. So given that this is an important challenge, how can technology accelerate getting new medicines to children? I think, you know, this is something that I've been involved with for the past 20, 30 years, scary though it may seem. You know, my, so I'm basically a PBBK modeler. And what I mean by that is what we do is we model the way that the body handles drugs. In other words, so as soon as you ingest a medication, you know, what we do is we essentially track the movement of the drug into the body and look at different exposures. And so we've developed these models that are able to do that. And initially in adults, and then more recently in pediatrics, and so the way that this has evolved over the last, uh, you know, 20 years is that in some cases for adults, we're actually able to fast track drug development by avoiding clinical DDI studies or drug-drug interaction studies. So basically, modeling has been embedded in drug development. And I think it's going the same way for pediatrics as well. So what we have done, or my colleagues have, Satara, is develop models that actually do similar things in pediatric subjects. So in other words, if they take a drug, what we can do is predict the exposures of that drug within them and also have a look at the changing physiology on the impact and also do dose extrapolation as well. So we're not quite there yet, but you know we do have these models available and there've been an increasing number of stories and publications out there that demonstrate the application of these models and how they can actually help in uh, drug development and, and essentially fast track. That's really fascinating. And Max, anything that you'd like to add? Yeah, that does sound really fascinating, Karen. It sounds a little bit above, above my pay grade, I think. Um, <laughs> I think for me, I guess the, the technological kind of aspects would be most interesting is that trying to think about how we can use technology to improve patient involvement in clinical trials. And we talk about participation a lot, and that's, you know, the, the kind of quintessential part of what we do when we're making clinical trials. But I think one thing we can think about is how we use technology in terms of app interfaces and um, social media groups and things like that to try and understand how we can best give patients a, a good experience when they're going through clinical trials and recruit the right numbers as well. Um, I think one thing that I would like to focus on at the moment is, is thinking about diversity of the patients that we accrue to clinical trials. Um, and we know it's been a problem for a long time. 
but I personally see things like um, increasing app interfaces to make things more kind of culturally sensitive and understanding and allow us to move away from kind of quite boring and dry patient information sheets to something that's a little bit more tailored and um, would be a really interesting avenue to explore to allow, as I say, any young person to enter the trial and be informed correctly when they're signing that consent form or indeed for any parent who's signing their child up to that trial. So for me, technology, one, one key area that we should be working on is trying to think about how we can best um, use it to improve practice when it comes to uh, patient accrual on clinical trials. I think the other thing about, um, you know, that I wanted to mention about the pubic hair modeling and, and, you know, Max, it's interesting to get your perspective, you know, on what, you know, what technology is to you, because obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about virtual patients that we create, but one of the things that we've been trying to do and focusing on is to make clinical trials more inclusive. So if we have exclusion criteria, if we're able to utilize these models to actually help make clinical trials more inclusive for both adults and children and whatever the disease state, then that can only help going forward as well. I couldn't agree more, Karen. I think one thing that I find really interesting is, is kind of this issue that is, is very difficult to solve, but a lot of these exclusion criteria are not necessarily arbitrary, but defined on criteria that we have kind of set out ourselves. You know, it might be things like kidney function, might, you know, there might be a kind of number for their EGFR or something like that. And that might be because they're not able to metabolize drugs. But actually, do we know in every clinical scenario that we have defined that function based on clinical or pharmacological data? I'm not sure. I mean, you know, as I say, I'm a lay person in, in effect, so I'm not certain, but please feel free to correct me. But I feel like there's a lot of these, these exclusion criteria, which could be better tailored towards the, the kind of treatments that we're providing rather than being in a, a kind of a presumed kind of health functional or functional status before for every patient starting the trial. So more flexibility might be quite interesting. Yes, no, I absolutely agree. So one key takeaway here is to think about how the exclusion criteria can be improved to make sure that there's diversity in, in the patients that are involved in these clinical trials. So going along with that, how can drug researchers help pediatric patients have a better experience as clinical trial participants? You know, I mean, obviously, Max and I are coming from very different perspectives here, but certainly from my perspective, what we aim to try and do with the models is get the dose right. And, you know, and especially when we're going to pediatrics, we're considering age, but also disease. And certainly that's one area that we can help with. Also, um, you know, in terms of the model development as well, we have extensive collaborations with different academic groups, different clinical groups as well across the world to try and get the best data to actually feed into these models to make them more predictive going forward. It's a modelist perspective. I'd be interested to hear Max's perspective. I actually couldn't agree more, Karen. I think the there was, there was kind of two angles from which I was thinking about this question, actually. And the one was, as exactly as you were saying, was trying to make treatments kinder. Um, and kinder, you know, is a complex word to use, but I think it's, it's the right way of thinking about what we want to do when we're thinking about dosages and pharmacology. And it's about making sure that we achieve exactly the right level of what treatment the, you know, the, the child or the young person needs for their cancer or their other disease. But, um, and also ensuring that any side effects are limited. And I think trying to think about how we can best tailor um, and make and, and individualize those dosages is, is, is really key. I think for me also, um, one thing I was kind of um, thinking about and, and trying to understand um, is, is trying to think about how we can use, um, you know, uh, technology and things like that to try and improve the patient's experience along the way of the trial. And, and that means things like measuring patient outcomes and including patients in the process of the trial rather than, 
And as I see it, it's the kind of traditional model at the moment, which is that patients sign up to trials, they're randomized, they receive their treatment, and then, you know, they're in follow-up. And, and I think there's, there's steps along each kind of the way which allow us to, to involve patients better in terms of providing their own experiential outcomes. Um, and that process can be an empowering because when we're providing patient reported outcomes, um, it can often give patients a room or space to be able to say how they're experiencing treatment because it's not just the, the physiological data we're trying to that we're trying to derive. It's not just outcome data. It's about how patients experience these treatments as well. And I think that's that's the whole ethos behind um, a lot of this kind of uh, a lot of the work that we want to do in terms of side effects and things. It's about making sure the patient's experience of this whole um, disease process is, is as good as it can be. So I'd like to be able to see more trials take on patient-reported outcome measures tailored towards young people and children, as difficult as that may be. Um, but making sure that we give give these young people the space to be able to empower themselves and express how they're feeling, and actually feel make them feel listened to along the process of the trial. Um, so I think those would be my my two key takeaways as well. Actually, it's great to hear your perspective, you know, because as I said, I mean, from my perspective, what I'm doing is trying to refine these models that help predict the dose and make it a better, well, clinical study potentially for uh, children. But obviously, I mean, you're looking at it completely opposite. So I mean, for me, it's absolutely fascinating. So thanks for that. This has been an incredibly informative discussion so far. So to wrap up, what trends do you see emerging in pediatric drug development over the next five years? So I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to bore you again. I mean, you know, obviously with the, as I said, I'm a modeler. I mean, obviously what I'm thinking about is going forward. What can we do to refine the models to make them better going forward? And and I think that's the really interesting thing. I think certainly across the world, you know, there are the modeling communities, the clinicians, the regulators, you know, there are ongoing discussions across the board really to actually integrate model-informed drug development within clinical settings and also the drug development process itself and recognizing that we need to get better data. You know, in terms of the big data, real world data, there are all of these different terms that modelers and quantitative pharmacologists are using. But I suppose what I'm trying to say in a nutshell is that going forward, there is recognition that we need to get better. We need to do more here. I think, you know, especially for pediatric drug development. And I think recognition by the regulators that model informed drug development going forward is big and is certainly going to help, especially in situations, rare orphan diseases. I I think that can only be a good thing going forward. I'm going to hand back to uh, Max to get the uh, all-important clinical perspective. Karen, yeah, I completely agree as well. I I can certainly see um, how important models will be in the next few years. I suppose my point, or kind of my my idea, I suppose, was um, thinking about how we can best improve um, the way we target treatments towards young people. Something that I've been quite interested in over the last few years is... um, tumor agnostic drugs in pediatric oncology. Um, you know, these are drugs that aren't tailored towards a specific line of t- childhood cancer. They're tailored towards a specific kind of mutation. Um, they're working now. There's drugs like larotrectinib and um, in sarcoma and things. And it's it's been really interesting to see those develop, um, both on a kind of pharmaceutical, but also a regulatory basis in terms of how we kind of license these drugs. Um, and then kind of that, that whole ethos and that whole uh, perspective of taking a real kind of like a pathophysiology of the of the of, of the disease and really breaking it down and trying to build and um, pharmaceuticals towards it will I think will be a much greater feature in pediatric trials and trials generally over the next few years. 
Um, I guess also something I, you know, as a patient, I see as, as being really, really important is trying to understand these patient experience point, uh, these, the patient's experience as well, and integrating, as I said, those, those patient reported outcomes into the work that we do because it's data with that data that we're missing. And um, when we do these trials, you know, we, we cap, we're capturing everything that we feel like we need to, like outcome data. But I am really passionate about the idea that actually there's experience data there that matters just as much. And um, so I'd like to see more qualitative data being captured as well for the next few years. And I think that's what's really interesting is a lot of the uh, ongoing discussions, you know, that I'm involved with at the moment, where obviously modelling is only just one of the components. I think it is really interesting to see that real life data that you're talking about is being fed back into discussions. And uh, as you say, I mean, that's the most important thing of all, really. It's the patient, isn't it? That's what that's what we're all doing this for. Completely agree. So overall, it's about understanding the patient's experiences, creating targeted treatments that are more tailored for the patients. And then, of course, the modeling aspect is also the, the other half that's really important. So thank you, Max and Karen, for your time and insights today. I really appreciate your time on the podcast. And thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us. I'd also like to thank Sertara as well for sponsoring this episode. You can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckershospitalreview.com.